the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Joined now by my old friend, Arthur Brooks. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, 10 years ago, you may recall, Arthur sat in for me a couple of times as guest host. He was then the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Since then, he's written a couple of great bestsellers, begun a must-read column in The Atlantic on happiness, taken up a professorship at Harvard Business School, and is now the author of this book, which I suspect by today is the number one selling book in America on Amazon, Build the Life You Want by Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey. Arthur joins me now. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? Good morning, my friend Hugh. You said I'm your old friend. Do I look old to you? Do I seem old to you? No, no, no. But that's just in terms of, it seems like I've been talking to you for a lot longer than 10 years, but it's, uh, I've been yeah. listening to you for a lot longer than that. Arthur, yeah, I want to begin with a hook. I want to begin with a hook. We'll get everyone in. How does caffeine work? You explain it in the book and that's like a hook. Yeah, for sure. Caffeine is a really interesting drug because it doesn't actually pep you up. It makes you feel peppy because it's actually blocking the receptors for a molecule that will make you feel lethargic called adenosine. Here's basically how it works. Adenosine is a, neuro, is a neurotransmitter floating around your brain. It has certain receptors that fit the molecule. When it goes into those receptors, you feel lethargic. It kind of slows you down. When you wake up in the morning, there's a bunch of these floating around your brain. If you put in caffeine, they're shaped the same way as the adenosine molecules, and they go into the adenosine's parking spots, so you can't relax. That's what you're actually doing with caffeine. Now, if you do it too much, you'll feel kind of jittery because you need a little bit of this adenosine, but, but that's how caffeine works. It's sitting in somebody else's parking spot. Now, I began with an anecdote because that is from the book Build the Life You Want, which is a book about science, molecules, caffeine, and the other part of that science, which is how and why people feel emotions, how they can manage it, and how they can build the life you want. But I want to stress, this is, I'm sure some people put it in the self-help section at, at Barnes & Noble right. or Amazon, but it really is a book about the science of the brain, Arthur. How are you trying to do the elevator pitch to people who don't like self-help books, but this isn't a self-help book, even though it will help you. Yeah. The, the, the way that I talk about it is that most self-help books actually don't help you very much. And part of the reason is they don't give you knowledge or action or a way to understand the mechanisms that are going on in the serious business that is your brain. This is a book about how you work. This is the owner's manual for your, for your, for, for your, your emotions, starting with actually how they're produced in the limbic system of your brain. You can't manage yourself unless you understand yourself. You can't actually change your habits unless you know what's going on in your brain. Now, it's not an academic book. I mean, this is written for everybody. My co-author and I wrote the book. We passed chapters back and forth, and we said, okay, will everybody who's interested be able to understand this? Yeah. If they want to go deeper into the science, they can go to the back of the book and look at the end notes. Nobody's going to do that. The truth of the matter is, that, however, when you look on the internet and says, get happier with one weird trick, don't trust it. It never works. You need the science. You need the knowledge. This book is about that. You mentioned your co-author, who is this humble little person by the name of Oprah Winfrey. She genuinely yeah. is humble. 
But I have said for decades and decades, when Rush was alive, I said the two people in America with the largest sustained audience over 30 years are Rush and Oprah. Now there's only Oprah. I don't think anyone is a better communicator over 30 years than Oprah. So you have to give us the backstory. She explains that she was a fan of yours and a reader of yours. But who reached out to you to say, let's do a book with Oprah? And how did your thinking process go when that happened? It was an extraordinary thing. You know, when you write a column, my column has about, you know, you have a column in the Washington Post and, 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 your, and your, your radio show reaches hundreds of thousands and millions of people every week. You don't know who's actually following Hugh Hewitt. And I don't know who's reading my column in the Atlantic on Thursday mornings, a column called How to Build a Life. Well, it turns out one of them religiously was Oprah Winfrey. She was reading it all the way through the coronavirus epidemic. And I was writing my column for everybody, and I still do. It's not a political column. It's a column about how to live a better life. And and when my last book came out that you and I talked about on your show as well, it uh, it it was called From Strength to Strength. She read that literally on the first day that it came out. She got it on the first day, downloaded it to her iPad, read it on the first day, and called me. And, and she says, hey, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm Batman, right? I mean, yeah, sure. This is Oprah Winfrey. But it was the voice, man. It was the voice I've been hearing yeah. since I was a young guy. And so the result is that, you know, it was Oprah Winfrey. She had me on her podcast where she talks about books. Extraordinary interviewer. She, I mean, like you, she, she is so knowledgeable about the book that she was quoting the book verbatim to me by memory while she was interviewing me about the book. And, wow. and we really hit it off, too. I mean, we're different people with different experiences. I mean, I, she didn't run the American Enterprise Institute. She ran mass media over a 25-year period, very different worlds that we come from. But you know what? We both are dedicated to lifting people up and bringing them together through different kinds of ideas. And she likes to actually find scientists who can do this. And so she said, why don't you know, why don't we do more together? So we got together in California and we had some dinner and we hung out a little bit. And finally we wound up, it was her idea. She said, why don't we, why don't we write a book and I'll, I'll be kind of the host and and you be the guest and we'll write this thing and we'll get it into the hands of millions of people and lift them up with these particular ideas. In other words, let's take the stuff you teach at Harvard and let's bring it to the whole world and let's do it together. And I said, oh man, yeah. So we got together in her tea house in Montecito, California, and over a three-day period, we hammered out a book outline. Then I went away to, you know, looked at the Pacific Ocean myself for, a, you know, about six weeks over last holiday season and passed chapters back and forth. And the result is the book that was just released. And who, I mean, it was great. I mean, it, it, she said, trust me, this is going to be a big deal. I said, I don't know. I mean, hope so. And it, it's Build the life you want is a big deal. It's already a big deal. Now, I am routinely recommending people uh, from strength to strength. I think I've recommended from strength to strength at least a hundred times, and I'm not uh, exaggerating because I think it makes a great deal of difference. This is the natural sequence. I would go first with from strength to strength, but I would go get this one when everyone's talking about it. Talk to me a little bit, Arthur, about uh, um, your reception at other events. I last saw Arthur. He gave the speech to my 45th college reunion class this past June. And I knew it was going to blow away everyone, and it did blow everyone away, just like your Harvard Business School. Let's unpack why Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey suddenly have a secret sauce that everyone wants to order. What is that? (laughs) Yeah, the whole idea is basically this. There is a lot that people don't understand about their own happiness. They, They start with a bunch of misconceptions about happiness that we can dispel. Like anything else, if you ha- if you start in the wrong place, you're not going to be able to find what you're looking for. And the number one thing that people get wrong about happiness that we talk about in this book is they think it's a feeling. 
I mean, most people think that they're chasing a feeling, the feeling of happiness, but that's wrong. Happiness has feelings associated with it, like your Thanksgiving dinner has the smell of the turkey associated with it. That is nothing more than evidence of happiness. So we start off with a scientific definition of what happiness is, and then we go into strategies where you can manage your emotions and build a life on the on these pillars of happiness. The happiness pillars are basically enjoyment with life, satisfaction in life, and meaning in life. That sounds simple, but it isn't, Hugh, because what we talk about in the book is the fact that people don't get, they get these things wrong as well. But once you understand how each, how your brain is processing each one of these macronutrients of happiness, you're off to the races. You can actually, and, and I'm living proof, man. I mean, I've, I, this is me search, not research. You know, over the past five years, since I've been doing, you know, really the bench science on this work and looking, talking to the, you know, the best neuroscientists in this field and writing about it in my column and in my papers, it's changed my life. I mean, I've been a social scientist for decades, but when I, when I focused on this, my life really, really changed. And, and I've seen it with my students and I've seen it with executives and people all over the country. Your diagnostic tool that is included within uh, Build the Life You Want is really one of the more uh, interesting ones I've seen and I believe in. I believe you've tested it. Positive affect and negative affect. I am a cheerleader, as you might be not surprised to learn. I was surprised to learn Oprah was a judge. I'm not surprised to learn that you're sort of a poet, but I was surprised to learn that your resting state in a, in a state of nature for Arthur Brooks is rather glum and you have to work yeah. at this. Uh, when yeah. did that metacognition about your natural state of being happen to you? It, it happened. Well, I've always kind of known that I was a little bit a little bit gloomy. I, I come from gloomy stock, you know, parents and grandparents who were kind of gloomy people. And I thought, ah, that's just kind of the way that I am. Maybe there's something wrong. Ah, I was kind of looking for what was wrong. Maybe I could make something better. But it was only as a social scientist when I started to look into the science of emotion was I was I able to understand how these affect profiles work. So what, what you're referring to, Hugh, is a test called the Positive Affect Negative Affect Series, which we present in this book. And this is highly validated by social scientists and neuroscientists for many years. Now, what this shows is that, that you need to understand your emotional profile if you're going to start to manage your emotions. Now, you can be one of four types of people. Somebody who intensely experiences positive emotions and intensely experiences negative emotions. That's a high affect person. That's called the mad scientist. I'm a mad scientist. The truth is I'm not a depressive person, but my high level of negative affect, it, it makes me feel and kind of the sum of all my feelings, kind of like not as good as I could under the circumstances. What that means is I don't need to get happier. I need to get less unhappy as a result of that. And I've learned how to manage negative affect by understanding this. Now, you're a cheerleader. High positive affect, low negative affect. Everybody wants to be a cheerleader, but there are costs involved in that. To begin with, cheerleaders, they don't like bad news. They're, they're, they tend to be very resistant to threats. Is Betsy, sorry, is, is, the, is the fetching Mrs. Hewitt a, um, a cheerleader too? No, she's not a cheerleader. She's a judge. She's a judge. That's a perfect match. Why? Because if yep. you married a cheerleader, you know what would happen? You would be we resistant just, to bad things can happen, and you'd go bankrupt. You'd spend all the money. That's when cheerleaders marry each other. It's a big problem. Yep. Now, yep. into the other parts of the profiles, then you have, if you have high negative and low positive, these are poets. That sounds bad, but it 
I mean, it is uncomfortable, but they tend to be romantic and they tend to be creative. And we actually understand the brain science. And then they're the low affect people, the people who are unflappable, the people who are not excitable. Those are judges. And that's who you need to have around you if you tend to be an excitable person. I need judges around me. Now, my wife is a cheerleader. I'm a mad scientist. So we have to be really careful. It's a combustible Oh, I thought you were and a poet because you're a musician from the Pacific Northwest. I was guessing you were a poet. I missed the line in which you identified as a mad scientist. Yeah, I'm a mad scientist and Oprah Winfrey's a judge and that's a really yes. good working relationship. So I find her enormously reassuring. Her judgment is impeccable and she finds me pretty entertaining. So that's kind of a good combination. Well, it's a great, but this is the end of part one. We're going to be back tomorrow with part two. Go out and get Build the Life You Want. Your book club will love it if you haven't already ordered it for your book club. And tune in tomorrow for part two with Arthur Brooks. Stay tuned. Back now with my friend Arthur Brooks. Part two about this book, which we began yesterday, Build the Life You Want, Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey. Yesterday was the intro, Arthur. Now I want to do in part two the most important takeaway for me. Now that's not for everybody, but for me, is stop judging people. Now, uh, you and I are both Catholics, so that means we've both been exposed to a lot of terrible church music. And I try not to judge the liturgy every time I go, but I always judge the liturgy. And in confession, I always get assigned the litany of humility because it's a very good (laughs) litany. But I think it is the key takeaway to being happy. Would you explain what the judgment advice is and how you uh, came to it in the middle of build the life you want. Yeah. So this book talks a lot about how you can manage your emotions through three basic techniques. Now, to begin with, you have to understand your emotions and get space between what you feel and how you understand these emotions. And you can do that through journaling and meditation and prayer. And some people go to therapy and whatever. But once you actually have some space between the the things that are bombarding you emotionally and what you decide to do, then you can react in several ways that are very constructive. Number one is you can decide to react differently than you feel. The second is you can substitute better emotions for the ones that you feel. And the third is what you're talking about, which is you can disregard your own judgment on the world. And this is, a, this is critically important. Look, people are walking through the world saying, this is bad, this is good, this is bad, I'm bad, I'm not lovable, you're not interesting, the traffic is crummy, the, the, the coffee is bitter, and it's just exhausting. Because when you're doing that, you're not observing that the world, you can't live in awe. And the result is that you are, in those moments, the central character in your psychodrama. The minute that you're judging everything, then the whole world is subject to the judgments of Hugh Hewitt, and you can't stop thinking about Hugh. And that's just torture. We need to actually get some perspective and some peace. And the best way to do it is judge not to quote St. Matthew. Now he says, judge not lest you be judged. And even if people are listening to us are not Christian men and women like you and me, then judge not lest you be judged because when you judge everything around you, you're judging yourself as well and it's exhausting and you will be unhappy. Stop with the opinions already. You don't need an opinion on everything. You almost don't need an opinion on anything. Yeah, let it go. Uh, just simply Let allow it, it to roll over your back. I think it's a just maybe the key chapter, but there are a lot of key chapters in here, Arthur. Let's uh, make sure I touch on the key technique. I told what the key takeaway, which is to keep a database of positive memories close at hand. 
And I employed yeah. this when my oldest, who is now 38, was a little girl and she would have a nightmare. It's happened. I would always end up with her talking about her favorite ride at Disneyland. And we would substitute right. a Disneyland ride for whatever it is that had woke her up with the bad dream. And I immediately referenced back to that when you talked about keeping a storehouse of good memories close at hand. That sounds so simple. It's really a wonderful idea, but people don't do it. They keep their bad memories close at hand, but they don't keep their great memories close at hand. Am I right generally? Absolutely. We have a negativity bias, and that's just part of evolution. Evolution has equipped us to always pay attention to bad things and refer back to the, the archive of bad things that have happened in the past. And there's a reason for this, Hugh. You know, the, uh, the, the negativity bias that, that humans have is because negative emotions keep you alive. Quite frankly, your anger and your disgust and your fear and your sadness, this makes sure that threats don't hurt you. You're able to run away, that, you, that you're, you're, you're afraid of being sad, so you don't want to be separated from your kin you don't, so you don't walk the frozen tundra and die alone. All of these negative experiences that, or the negative emotions that we have are keeping us alive. The result of that is they're always getting our attention, and we remember those things very distinctly as well. But that's not adapted in a functional way. You know, the truth of the matter is that, you know, uh, uh, walking the frozen tundra is bad, but Twitter is no big deal. And so we're thinking about negative things that are little and, un and insignificant using the same onboard computing hardware that was developed for the Pleistocene era. So what do we need to do? We need to be smart about it. Don't live just according to our instincts, but actually think and, and, and create a strategy that's more practical for the current moment. When you have a bad memory, when you have a, a, a bad dream, when you're feeling particularly negative, usually that's not an accurate representation of the world around you. You know, one of the things, you know, people always say, look on the bright side. Well, actually, you have to be more specific than that. You have to be more tangible than that. And the, 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 the Disneyland memories are a really good place to start. I recommend that people keep a running list of the things for which they're grateful. Updated every Sunday. The top five things. I don't care how stupid they are. I got a bag of candy corn and liked it. If that's on your list, more power to you. Update it every Sunday. Look at it every single day. Literally, you'll be 25% happier at the end of 10 weeks because of the emotional substitution that you're undertaking. Candy corn's a very good place to start. I want to start with the, uh, the original Star Wars movie because you made me aware in this book, you and Oprah did, Build the Life You Want. Uh, I recalled the scene in the first Star Wars movie where they're trapped in the trash compactor and it's getting, the walls are getting closer and they're getting, that's social media, Arthur. Every day, yeah. judgments are being thrust back upon people. And your advice, do not Google yourself. Pay no attention right. to what people are saying to you. Now, that's extremely put. You've got to pay attention to what your spouse, your family, your friends, and your employer are saying about you. But generally, the observed life is not a happy life. And if you're observing that's yourself right. being observed, you're really in that trash compactor. And every day, the pressure is growing. And I don't know if you're in time. I don't know if you're going to be able to to get the bar up to stop that because social media is overwhelming the younger generation, especially. Yeah, absolutely. Social media is is terrible for, for your happiness. And different platforms are terrible in different ways, by the way. So if you look at Twitter or, you know, a.k.a. X, which we're calling it these days, that's a that's really a machine that will bring you down because it tends to it tends to attract malignant narcissists that feed off of your unhappiness through a lot of hatred and negativity. Uh, uh, Instagram, on the other hand, it tends to bring down your happiness because of social comparison. There's not that much negative politics on Instagram, but there's a lot of people more beautiful than you who have more pronounced 
you know, abdominal muscles than you, who have more money than you, who have a nicer car than you. And the result is that social comparison. Remember, when you judge everything out there, you're also allowing yourself to be judged. And that social comparison is, a, is an unhappiness machine. The reason that people go to these platforms all the time is they get hooked because of dopamine, a neuromodulator in the brain that has to do with the anticipation of reward. All addictions from smoking to methamphetamine to gambling to pornography, all those terrible things, they, they all have to do with, with dopamine and social media engages the same set of circuits. It also has to do with the fact that we crave social life. We crave relationships with other people because of a hormone called oxytocin in our brain. The problem is we don't get any of that hormone from social media. So social media kind of works like the burgers and fries of social life. You're hungry, you eat it. It makes you both malnourished and obese if you eat it all the time. And, and, it, and it's just it's the it's cheap calories of thinking. Uh, I've spent Absolutely. a lot of time Working on friendship from the time I was an undergraduate reading Montagna's 26 essay in the first volume all the way through like three months ago, Arn and I did a series on Aristotle's three kinds of friendship. You put devote a lot of this book and Oprah talks about Stedman and and uh, her good woman friend whose name is escaping me right now. Gail King. Gail King. Yeah, that's it, Gail. And I was talking to the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt about that because she just loves Oprah about their relationship, which she's always talked about. Arthur, you, I know that, that Esther is your closest friend and wife, but who are your closest friends outside of your family? Yeah, no, that's just something that I really had to work on. And part of it is because I didn't have a, a collegiate experience. It's very interesting, by the way, Hugh, seeing you in the habitat of your 45th college reunion. That was extraordinary. I have to tell you because I saw you hanging around with all these really close friends. And by the way, they're all political liberals. All of them. Oh, no, they're very lefty. Politically. And they're all lefties. Yes. They're all lefties. And, yes. and, you know, it's like you're yucking it up. You're having a great. It was beautiful to see. But I didn't have that experience because I was a college dropout. I, you know, I, I, you know, quit, went, played music, moved to Europe, did the whole thing, you know, got married. And, and I, I, I missed all of my 20s. So I didn't have those particular relationships. And I found as I was doing a lot of the relationship or the research on relationships that I had a lot of deal friends, but not that many real friends. Now, we all know the difference between real and deal. And so I realized I had to do a whole lot of recuperative work to go back and, and actually see if I was doing the work with people that were going to be my real friends. And now I'm much better at that. Now, I'm a super extrovert. Extroverts have a hard time digging into relationships. Introverts are much better at real friendship than extroverts are. Extroverts just want fresh meat all the time. Introverts, they want to have a, you know, go deep down the silo with these people. But I've actually done the work. And besides my wife, and besides, you know, my immediate family members, I have a very super close friend in Atlanta. His name is Frank Hanna. I love him. Um, he's, you know, he's Catholic like I am. He wants me to be holy. He wants me to be happy. I talk to him every week, usually for about an hour. I have another friend. His name is Tully Friedman. He's in, he's in, he's in San Francisco. I talk to Tully Friedman all the time. He's 81 years old. He's been with me since my AEI days. And, you know, he, he, he cares about me, Hugh. He actually cares about my happiness. And, you know, that makes it possible for me to, for, to, to cultivate these relationships in new ways. And you know why I did it? I didn't do it because it came naturally. I did it because my research said, Brooks, you're not going to be happy until you do that work. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. That This is so compelling and to build the life you want. The, the chapters on friendship, the three kinds and how to assemble what you need and to keep score of it. That is part two. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about the toxic culture in which we are living. And part of the solution is to build the life you want. Build the life you want available in bookstores now. Don't miss part three tomorrow. I'm back now with my friend Arthur Brooks. This is part three of a series that we taped on Monday afternoon. And I was particularly happy on Monday afternoon because the Browns had not yet played the Steelers. So I was anticipating a win. But it could have gone, if we'd done this on Tuesday, it could have gone the other way or it might have been much happier. Arthur, you talk in circles around our political toxic culture and the fact that it looks like America is coming apart at the seams. I like to tell people that I spend a lot of time outside the Beltway and everything's just fine, but inside the Beltway, it's not. You spend a lot more time outside of the Beltway than I do or outside of the Boz Wash corridor. What do you think? And to build, uh, build the life you want, is that partly in response to the toxicity in the culture? Yeah. You know, the truth is when you have a highly toxic culture, which happens in all societies from time to time, the way to solve that problem is to is to inject a hunger for something better into people's lives. It's not good enough to say, here's the answers. Here's the solutions. Here's a whiz bang policy idea. You have to make people want it. You know, people learn this technique from every social leader, from Gandhi to Mandela to 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 Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King's secret to the social movement that was behind the civil rights movement was to make people hungry for greater love and justice. It wasn't to say, I'm going to force this down your gullet. It was to say, I want to help people understand that they will live better under these circumstances and for them to demand it. The reason I'm doing this work is because the truth of the matter is we're not going to get a better country and we're not going to get a better world until people say, I'm not happy enough. I want to be happier and I can be happier. I want a happiness movement is what is what really this amounts to. And I believe that we can actually do this when we give people the solutions to what they're looking for. Now, politics today and the, the toxic political culture in Washington, D.C., it's it's kind of imitated all around the country in really striking ways. And it has to do with the fact that that right now in, in America, and by the way, every 50 years or so, we tend to see movements just like this. This looks an awful lot like the late 60s or early 70s is, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23. That looks an awful lot like you go back another 20 years. You go back to the 20s and you see, you know, the, the populism and you see the toxicity and the rhetoric of the fact that we're going to split apart as a country. We can't live together. We see this again and again. That's being propelled. That's being mobilized. But what, why, what we social scientists call dark triad personalities. These are people that have three characteristics of their personality. They have narcissism, which is to say it's all about me, Machiavellianism, which is I'm willing to hurt anybody who gets in my way, 
and they have psychopathy, traits of psycho being have a psychopathic character. That they're not psychopaths or axe murderers, but they have traits of this that says, I don't feel any sort of remorse when I hurt other people. And we're rewarding them in our in our politics and our media. We're rewarding people that have these characteristics and they feed on our hatred and bitterness and unhappiness. That's a really bad kind of fuel that we can have. And the only way we can fight it is with greater hunger for happiness. Now, Arthur, um, because politicians are rewarded, and I think politicians are a fine category. I don't say it as a word of disgust. It's just a category. But their, re their rewards are uh, often couched in terms of followers and likes, and usually it attracts extreme people, and therefore right. the silos move further out to the left and to the right, and the money and the small donation do you have any brilliant ideas how to stop that? Because if you look at cable television, everybody super serves their demographic. That It becomes sort of a gymnasium in which we watch our own opinions exercise so we get better at, at articulating them. But it's not yeah. about exchange anymore. How do we get out yeah. of that? Yeah, part of that has to do with the fact that, once again, I mean, it's amazing to me. When I look around and you, know, you see the 70 percent of Americans don't want a Trump Biden matchup in the 2024 election, it looks like we're just we're going to get that. You know, what's going on with that? And the answer is that the, the election dynamics are being engineered by a relatively small part of the population because the 80 percent of the population or so that wants something better and something different are not engaged until much later in the process. And so this is a structural problem. Generally speaking, when these we, we this in, in economics, we call this a suboptimal equilibrium in the game theory of how this works. The way that you break that problem is by actually having a popular movement of, of a more intense energy from people who are more representative across the population. And you do that by actually making it the new dance craze is the way that that works. You know, when you see that, for, for example, in France, it was going back and forth and back and forth between political elements that people didn't like. And then Macron, I mean, imperfect as he is, he was a political movement that mobilized the 80 percent that was not being that was not engaging in politics. And they, that political movement swept him into office. It swept tons of candidates into the into the uh, into the assembly in France that were of his party. And it, it led to a whole bunch of change. Now, of course, France is France. They always kill the leader as practical, or at least, you know, metaphorically, as soon as he's in there. So, you know, probably four percent actually still like him. But that's actually how it would work in the United States, too. Or, or a more optimistic, a more loving, a more happiness-oriented person said, we need a love rebellion in this country. We need a happiness rebellion in this country. Strike back against both bullies right now. Let's do something that we can all get behind. I know you're not going to get go to every primary and vote in every primary election for the rest of your life because you got a life to live. But this time, we can really do it and get somebody that actually creates a movement. That has a real possibility of succeeding, I hope, I think. Now, Arthur, uh, to close this segment off, there's, there's signal and noise in the culture. And the signal is, and the demand signal is your happiness column in the Atlantic. People read yeah. it every, everywhere they go. I mean, everybody reads that. Jeff Goldberg is an old acquaintance. I wouldn't call him a friend, but I've known him for a long time. If I'm him, and I don't know if you've talked to him about this, that column draws attention to his magazine. So does he replicate it with writers like you? Or is he caught in the binary politics of the moment and stuck with kind of presenting left-right points of view? Because I think the signal is the reception of your column. And I would want more Arthur Brooksian sorts of things as opposed to division sorts of things. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting because I think probably people go to the Atlantic where I write for all different sorts of things. My guess is that the people who regularly read my column, How to Build Life, every Thursday morning in the Atlantic are not the same people that are clicking on the articles that say that, you know, X, Y political party is full of people who are evil and stupid. My guess is that actually it's a segmentation of the audience. And and one of the reasons that the 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 Atlantic is so popular right now. It's kind of the it magazine for ideas is because there's so many different kinds of people that are going to it. Plus there's the fact that there's really not that much competition. That's on that, that level of quality uh, of writing or so they think, I, I don't know. It's a good question. What I want is people to, is people to read my column and demand more positivity to demand more information that they can actually use that will tie them to other people as opposed to alienating them from from the rest of the crowd. And, and I don't know exactly how that happens in, in editorially speaking. One of my favorite podcasters, a guy named Doug Marie's, who has something he calls the joy initiative. Sports are an occasion of joy. So he wants to talk about the joyful parts of sports, not the, the parts of sports which drive people crazy because it's a joy initiative. I, I think it's the same sort of tenor of what you're talking about with the happiness movement or the demand for happiness but for the market, I think that demand is real, Arthur. You're the economist. How does that market get through to the producers of products that might meet it? Yeah. So de- the demand for positive is always higher, but lower in, is higher in, in, in amount, but lower in intensity than the demand for negative. And the reason is because we're evolved for this negativity. We're evolved to actually to, to, to perceive threat. That's the reason for it. So for example, about 42% of your day, you're walking around with predominantly negative emotions, but those are kind of low intensity idle. About 16% of your day, you have negative emotions, but that is more intense. And so you remember it more. So what we need is actually people that are, are more uh, consistently bringing a positive message to people and, and we reward them in media. We reward them with our dollar votes, with the, with the, the interest that we bring to to, to you know, what we're watching on Netflix where each one of us as citizens are looking at that. And so each one of us can actually, we can vote for, we can upvote what we want. One of the things that I recommend to people is they turn off the bullies on their own side. They turn off the people that are actually instantiating their hate to say, like, do I feel good as a person when I'm talking hatefully about my neighbor? And the answer is almost certainly no. So turn off the person who's firing up that hatred in your life. And it's a hard thing to do. But but Arthur, we're dumb monkeys. And I love the (laughs) dumb monkey test. And we got two minutes left in this segment. We're all dumb monkeys. Do you want to explain what the dumb monkey test is? Well, I, there's so many dumb monkey tests. You know, I first, fortunately, I've not done primate research at the primary level. So which dumb monkey test do you mean, Hugh? The rice in the box where they put their hand in. Uh, okay, that, that's the South Asian monkey trap. So the South Asian monkey trap is that you, and, and what they'll do is they'll take a coconut and hollow it out. They'll put a bunch of rice in the coconut and the coconut is just, has a hole in it to get the rice just big enough for a monkey to put its hand in but too small to get a fistful of rice out of. And they'll sit there with their hand in the, in the, in the coconut with a handful of rice. And they'll come up and, you know, take the monkey off and do bad things with the monkey, which, you know, is not really in the monkey's interest. That's the problem that we have. Here's the deal. You want to be happier? Let go of the rice for Pete's sake. And the yeah. rice of course is being right and is feeling like your political candidate has an oracle on truth and that your neighbor is stupid and evil, just let go of the rice, man. And this is basically, you know, what we were talking about the other day on the show yeah. when, when you said that 
I mean, it's exactly what you were saying that, you know, we can we, we can actually choose to not judge everything. We can choose to not have an opinion about everything. And when we do, it's I'm telling you, Hugh, it's changed my life. It's changed oh, I, my I life. always tell people we choose to be offended. And if you're offended, that's a choice you make. And if you choose not to be offended, you're going to be a lot happier in your life. Part four is tomorrow, America. Don't miss it. Go out and get the book now. Build the life you want by Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey. It's in every airport. You will read it on the airplane. You will be glad that you got it. You will underline it. You will give it to your friend. And you will have end notes like my end notes because there are lists to be made. Even if you're not a journalist like me, come back for part four tomorrow. Thank you, Arthur. We'll be right back. Welcome back, America. It's part four of my conversation with Harvard Business School professor Arthur Brooks. He's author, along with Oprah Winfrey, of this brand new book, Build the Life You Want. And we're actually going to do a fifth part, but you're going to have to listen to the podcast to get the fifth part. But we're going to put this all together and release it on Saturday. First of all, my compliments on you for quoting Joseph Epstein, who is the best writer at work in America today. Of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. So I want to begin there. Envy is a soul killer. It is absolutely a soul killer. And I think, Arthur, this is a hypothesis. The amassing of great wealth, influence, and profile among a handful of people, and they're not bad people, Elon, Peter Thiel, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they're not bad people, but they are creating enormous envy in the world because everybody wants to be that, and that is not possible. How do we escape that trap? So it, it begins with understanding exactly what's happening, which is the reason that we have so much attention to envy in this book. So that you can understand how the science of how it works. To begin with, envy is evolved. Humans to live in society, they need to know where they where they sit in the hierarchy. They need to just know if they're the alpha male or the omega male. They need to find where they actually are in the hierarchy, and they have to have a motivation to want to rise in the hierarchy for us to actually progress, make progress, and to prosper as a species. Every other species does this as well. Lobsters do this. Monkeys do this. Everybody does happen to do this. But the problem is, as as sentient beings, human beings, we find that this is really bad for our society. And quite frankly, it's really bad for our souls. Envy is a deadly sin. It has two commandments, not just one that says you're not supposed to do this. It's That's actually how bad it is. So what we talk about in the book is how do you understand it? Number one, there's nothing weird about you for feeling envy. But number two, you better recognize what it's based on. There's malignant envy and there's benign envy. Benign envy is basically based on the fact that certain people have done something wonderful that you wish you've done. Turn that into admiration. Malignant envy is you think somebody has something that they don't deserve. Disregard that. The way that you do that is by unfollowing all of the people who are famous for simply being famous off of Instagram is one of the ways that you do it. And last but not least, remember one big thing, which is that if you think that somebody's going to be so happy because they have money and power and pleasure and fame in abundance more than you, you got another thing coming. Your grandmother would have said you're not thinking about it in the right way. And deep down, you know it's true as well. This is the kind of consciousness that you need. And in the book, we have all kinds of exercises on actually how you can get better at lowering your envy levels and getting happier as a result. Arthur, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to John Haidt and big admirer of yours. I gather you are friendly colleagues. John wants to ban cell phones from schools. I am 100% in agreement with him. I think it is, it's not as bad as drugs, but it's going to be, it is the effective equivalent of a drug on the way that the brain works. 
Do you agree with John and me about that to get cell phones out of schools? Completely, completely. They're dangerous for young people. They're distracting for young people. They're they're ruining the educational experience that young people have. And furthermore, they're ruining the social experience that people can have when they're with each other. When you, f- you find the young people today, ninth, 10th grade, even eighth or seventh grade, when they have the devices, they're in the lunchroom looking at their phones and not talking to each other. That, that The result of that is that the hormone oxytocin is underproduced and they will be around people all day long and get lonelier at the same time. The science backs this up abundantly. People should put their cell phones in lockers when they come to school and they should pick them up when they're done. And they will weirdly, mysteriously start getting happier, better socialized and performing better in school as students and as people. Now, I'm going to trap people into listening to the podcast. The podcast is about religion. Arthur and I are both observant Catholics. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in the podcast segment But I want people to note, Arthur, you've been talking about evolutionary process and the science of happiness based upon our evolution. You and I are no opponents of evolution. I I read Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene in 1976, persuaded about natural selection. The Vatican has no problem with it. It is not inconsistent with Catholic teaching whatsoever. But are people surprised that you're such a, and you are a scientist, you're actually deep into the social science, and yet a man of faith. Because Richard Dawkins dismisses that possibility. I've had him on the show. He asked me, do you really believe that Jesus turned water into wine? And I said, yes. And he said, my God. I said, oh, my God. But that actually isn't even the big miracle, right? (laughs) Rising from the dead is the big miracle. That's kind of a party trick. Do people find it difficult to equate your religious belief or Oprah's religious belief with your attachment to data? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, the, the reason for that is that most social scientists like me are, are not religious. They tend to classify religion as a social construct, something that's, that, that people make up in order to deal with the world. But that's a category error. That's a misunderstanding of the way that religion actually works. And the way for people to understand it, and I know we're going to talk about this more in the podcast, which everybody should go and listen to in advance, but here's the way to understand the relationship between faith and reason. This is the way to argue about this at at the Thanksgiving table if it's necessary. Think about if you really, really want to understand Picasso, you need to understand two things, the man and his work. You can't find evidence of the man in his work. You can't study a Picasso painting for the rest of your life and find evidence of the man Picasso. On the contrary, you actually need to back up and understand that there's the creator and there is the creation. And if you want to have a fulsome knowledge, if you want to be intellectually stimulated at the deepest level from what life is all about when it comes to Picasso, you need to understand both. You need to understand what the man was doing, where he lived, what were his inspirations, who were the people that he knew, and you need to know a lot about his art as well. That's the relation between faith and reason. And I, I, I think for that reason, there are many reasons to read Build the Life You Want, but that is the key one. I want to end on air by making one more point, Arthur. The tragedy of families that have been split by politics or of friendships yeah. that have ended over this period of intense polarization, grieves a lot of people. It obviously grieves you and Oprah. What is your recommend? uh, If someone has broken a friendship or a family relationship because of politics, what is your recommendation to either party? Yeah, so it's, and again, this is no joke. One in six Americans is not talking to a family member or close friend because of politics. And that is just insane. The number one reason for that is that the bullying dark triad politicians and media 
have tried to convince people that thinking differently about politics is a form of abuse worth a schism in the family. The only reason to have schism is actual abuse and differences of a political opinion are not that. All you're doing is denying yourself and your family members the happiness that they deserve. Here's the way back. Here's the beginning of the way back. Don't make it a big deal. Just non-dramatically start to re-engage as if it's not a pro- Sooner or later, you're going to talk about it. Don't talk about it at the beginning. Just say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Want to have a drink? And talk to people as if there were not this baggage behind it. Sooner or later, it's going to come up. But be non-dramatic about this, the nature of the schism or the nature of the rift or the nature of the argument. Just be friendly. Just be loving. Just be nice. And you're going to find that there's going to be tremendous relief on the other side when you do that. And when the time is right, you'll discuss what happened. And probably, if things go right, you'll be able to laugh about it. Arthur, have you lost any friends over? You you have managed to exist above the fray. Now, the American Enterprise Institute is a conservative free market enterprise institute. You know everybody in the Republican Party. You're co-authored with Oprah. You know everybody in Hollywood and the Hollywood elite now. You know everyone at Harvard. You get along with everyone. To what do you attribute that? The truth is I love people. And it's that and and it's fine that we disagree. It's It doesn't mean I'm going to agree, but the truth of the matter is, here's what I keep in my mind, Hugh. You know, if I want to be persuasive, I have to be persuadable, number one. Number two is I'm wrong. I just don't know on what. And so I want to be around people who think differently differently than me so to see whether they might be able to persuade me. That makes my life interesting. It makes me more likely to learn more things. And last but not least, I am just not willing to not have friends for something as unimportant as politics. I'm just not willing to do that. That's not a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Let's conclude with the three pieces of advice that St. Augustine gives to a student seeking direction, Arthur. Do you recall them offhand? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, what, 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 what are the qualities? It's, It's like teacher, maestro, what are the qualities? Give me the three qualities that we need to actually to, to prosper in life, to be successful in life. Humility, humility, and humility. <laughs> That's St. Augustine. That's a pretty good authority. Uh, give us one minute on what that means, Arthur, in 2023. What that means in 2023 is not being so doggedly attached to what you think. Be attached to people, not to just your opinions. Human beings have beating hearts and love for you, and that's what really matters. Your opinions will never keep you, uh, keep you warm at night. Your opinions will never give you the company that you seek. You know you want love. Seek love and don't push love away. And most of all, don't let anybody turn political opinions or ideology into a, way, into a force field that makes love harder for you to keep and, keep and attain and give. That is, a, that is a bottom line on Build the Life You Want. Now, part five that Arthur and I will release in the whole podcast tomorrow, it's going to be about faith, so don't miss that. Thank you, Arthur. We'll finish it up tomorrow on the podcast of Highly Concentrated Hugh. Thank you, Arthur. I'm back Thanks. now with Arthur Brooks. Arthur, the part I wanted to leave for the podcast is the most personal because you write in Build the Life You Want that you had a, a moment of extraordinary grace at Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico. And you are a daily communicant, or at least a daily mass attender, and you say the rosary with Esther every night. Um, how did this all happen? I'm a Catholic. I, I do go to my Archbishop Chaput is listening right now. I try and say the rosary once in a while, 
But those are disciplines which are rather extraordinary. How did that happen? It happened as a, as a long process. And it happened not just because of my emotions, on the contrary, but because largely because of my decisions. You know, I've been a Catholic since I was 16 years old. Um, I, I had an experience, a, a, a sort of a mystical experience at, at the, you know, when I was 15 years old at the Shrine of Guadalupe in, in Mexico City. And it was, I found that I was supposed to be Catholic. Um, and, and I converted at 16, you know, I did, I was a Catholic through my twenties and, and into my thirties, but I found that I, what I, I needed more, I needed to actually go deeper. And so what I looked for was a way to experience my Catholic faith in in a much deeper fashion. And that meant actually the disciplines that I needed. Now, to be sure, my wife also took me by the hand. She grew up in a, in a hard red atheist communist family. Nobody went to church. Oh, wow. She went to church the last time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She went to church the last time when she, for her first communion at age eight until she met me. And then when she, she would occasionally go and, and I would take the kids alone. But little by little by little, by the grace of God, literally by the grace of God, she was kind of brought into it. You know, there's this old Irish saying that dad gets the family into church, but mom gets the family into heaven. <laughs> and there's a lot to that. You know, this is a, is a really important thing. And so we held each other's hand. I was kind of kind of part of the. The, the disciplines and the routines, and she was part of the spiritual development. And, and the result of that is that iron sharpens iron in our spiritual lives. And this is one of the things I talk about a lot with, with couples. You know, we, we talk to young couples all the time and I say, are you intimate? And they think I'm talking about, you know what? And I'm not, I'm saying, are you praying together as a couple? That is literally the most intimate things thing that couples do together. I talk to long married couples, couples that have six kids and they never they never pray together because it feels too weird. And the reason is because it is the single most intimate thing. Do you want to be married till that? Do you want to be looking into your spouse's eyes when you take your dying breath? Pray together is the bottom line. It's the most intimate thing that you can possibly do. Do you want to reinforce, concretize all of your particular beliefs? Get down on your knees and pray every day. And if you're a Catholic like me and Hugh, go to mass as often as you possibly can. Get into these particular routines. Why? Because it becomes kind of like your beating heart. It becomes part of the, the rhythm of your day. And your day simply doesn't feel complete unless you started off with mass and finish with your rosary or whatever these routines happen to be. And at the end of the day, look, I mean, that's what we want. When we're, when we're taking our dying breaths, what do we want? We want to be fully in, in rhythm with the Lord and, you know, praying to the master. And, and this is the best way that we can possibly do it. If Archbishop Shepu is listening to this, I, he's a real hero of mine, I have to say. And it's because of his kind of witness that I'm able to live this kind of, the kind of life that I do as an American. Oh, Catholic. every morning. I always keep myself aware of the fact that the Archbishop is listening. It's a standard that I set. But here's where I wanted to stick the dismount, Arthur. I spent the 90s prior to 9-11, exploring other religions for the benefit of all religions. So doing for PBS, searching for God in America, writing books, talking to people of all different faiths, interviewing the Dalai Lama with whom you are friends, trying to do that. That all ended on 9-11. All right, that that Mm -hmm. stopped. Not because I wanted to stop, because there was no demand. You are now reintroducing the ecumenical moment, which is absolutely necessary for the world. Do you have a prayer that it will, do you have more than a prayer that it will succeed? Yeah. To begin with, we have to remember that, look, not everybody has religious faith, but those of us who do, we we need to help each other. We need to, we need to support each other. We need to lighten each other's load. That's critically important. The idea that we would be having this, these, this, you know, warfare between religions at this point is incredibly anachronistic in a world that needs more faith. 
in a world that actually needs a transcendental walk. You know, and it's like the whole world is set up so that we'll lose ours. And so we need to support each other in that walk. Furthermore, here's a really interesting thing. When you when you become more sophisticated about the religions of other disciplines and other parts of the world, it just makes you better at your own. You know, I go to every year I go to see the His Holiness the Dalai Lama at his monastery in, in the Himalayan foothills in Dharamsala. And he, he always says, I want you to be a better Catholic. I've learned the technique for praying my Catholic rosary while, while I have, while I've learned how to meditate with the Tibetan Buddhist monks. There's I, every time I go, I'm more devoted to my Catholic faith. It doesn't weaken anything. It really does make everything better and enriches our sense of sisterhood and brotherhood one with the other. And, and who knows if you're able to persuade somebody of your own faith and, and enriches their life as a result, so much the better. What are the, the last takeaways? Go to a church, any church, go into the back. Arthur explains it to you. You don't have to sign up for anything. Just go to a church. But Arthur, I'll conclude with this. You're this close to writing a varieties of religious experience for the 21st century. What do you do next? Because there's no, I don't know what Arthur Brooks does for an encore because you keep doing an encore on top of an encore. What is next? The next book that I'm actually starting to work on already is called Start Strong. And it's a scientific guide to starting your life, understanding that in your 20s, you're going to set patterns that are going to work for you for the rest of your life. You're also going to set patterns that work against you for the rest of your life. The neuroscience of falling in love, what it means to set your goals without being attached to your goals. And what I really want to do is I want to write a book for my 20-something kids, but for my students and, and everybody else such that we can we can remember you know, we can think, we can set a strategy for what a happier, better country is going to look like in the in the in the many decades when when Hugh and Arthur are not around to see it. I want to set a bunch of ships sailing. That's number one. The second thing is this: I want a better America. I want a better America that's full of more happiness and more love. And what I really want is I want a political movement around these ideas. I want people who are dedicated. We're public. You know how our, our our mutual friend Grover Norquist he makes people sign yeah. a petition if he's going to get support that no more ta- no tax increases. I want to do something like that. So where if you if if you understand what we're talking about, you publicly commit not to crossing the line to bitterness and hate and unhappiness. And we have you on record saying that you're going to be a warrior for love and happiness and whatever you do for a living, including politics. And I think that we can actually make some progress on that. These are the next things that I'm thinking about and. Anybody wants to join me, man, I'm, I, I'm, I'm open for business. And, and, and oh, that is a graciousness pray. project. I'm all for the graciousness project. Arthur Brooks, congratulations. Build the life you want. Have a very successful book tour. And I will see you soon, my friend. My best to Esther and your entire family. Likewise to yours. I'm praying for you. And thank you for the incredible show that you continue to produce, that, of which I'm a big fan. Thank you, Arthur. Bye-bye. Thank you, my friend. See you soon. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.